Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we're enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about redemption, you can go to redemptionchurchseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. Hey, good to see all of you. Uh, my name is Alex, one of the pastors here. And um, yeah, so today we're jumping back into, as you just heard read in our liturgy, we're jumping back into the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We started the Sermon on the Mount back in October, went for a, we covered chapter 5, and uh, then we got into Advent season, and then we looked at our vision for this year, focusing on care, and then last week we uh, looked at the subject of the sanctity of life, and so now we're excited to be jumping back in word by word, line by line, through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So, and I've written some background material. Uh, It's available on our website, so uh, maybe 15 pages or so written up on the background to the Sermon on the Mount that will tell you a whole lot more stuff that you just kind of can't get into or otherwise will miss the Super Bowl and maybe even be late for, for work tomorrow. So I won't cover all those details here today in the sermon, but if you want that, that's available in a PDF form online. So Sermon on the Mount, to jog your memory, Jesus has literally ascended a physical mountainside and he's teaching us what a disciple of his, what our lives are actually to look like. As contrary to what many believe, Christianity is not a private, me and Jesus only kind of religion. That there's actually implications on how we are to live our lives. Justification is not just so that you pray a prayer, you're reconciled to God, receive forgiveness of sins, and your spot is secured in heaven. That, 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 that part, yep, yep, that's true. And because that's true, there are, are immediate horizontal implications in how we view self and others, friends and enemies, wealthy and the poor and so on. There are implications on how we are to live our lives as his followers. So many things in the world are, yes, very gray, very vague, very confusing oftentimes, but when it comes to Jesus Christ and following him, he's left nothing gray. He makes it so abundantly clear, so abundantly like, okay, that's wow, in your face. He says things like, either you're totally for me or you're against me. Oh, that's that's clear. Um, You cannot worship God and money. And then he follows it with, you will worship one or the other. Like, Like, okay. So Jesus is very good at drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is what I'm calling you to. So St. Augustine, as I mentioned earlier in our liturgy as we were reading one of his prayers, uh, he, he's the first one to actually call this section of the scripture the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus didn't go up on a mountainside and said, okay, guys, here's the title of the sermon. It's going to be called, well, the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't do that. Rather, Augustine, about 400 years later or so, uh, he is the one that actually titled this section called the Sermon on the Mount. And as you read what Augustine has to say about the Sermon on the Mount, he says that Jesus ascends a mountain, that Jesus was doing something in the ascending of the mountain. You see this with Elijah goes up a mountain, Moses goes up a mountain, Jesus goes up a mountain a couple of times in the Gospels. And each time that is a signal to early readers, God's about to do something. God's about to say something. So Jesus goes up on a mountainside and teaches us what Augustine refers to as as higher things. So as God in the flesh, Jesus has not come merely to give us a few morals. 
that Jesus is not some just merely a good teacher on how to live life. He's not an armchair makeshift philosopher. He's not like a Yoda kind of sage offering pithy wisdom sayings. Um, As Christians, we confess that Jesus Christ is God. That Jesus is not an afterthought of God, that Jesus is not a plan B of God. Jesus is not even the best at trying to be like God. As Christians, we say this really obnoxious, very narrow, and very confident saying, Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God. And this has been abundantly clear throughout Scripture. In the, uh, in the year 325, our first church council, Nicaea, pens these words. This is if you're a Christian, this is what you believe. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things, visible and invisible, okay? And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before ages, before all ages. Listen to that, I love this next line. God from God, true light from true light. He is begotten, not made. He is of the same essence as the Father. So what are we saying when we say, who is Jesus? We answer the word, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That's why we as Christians, that's why we talk about Jesus, sing to Jesus, pray to Jesus, worship Jesus. This is why our church exists, to enjoy Jesus. We make a very, very big deal about who Jesus is because he is God, he is our God, and he has loved us into eternal life. And so, as God in the flesh, he came and he called us to die to ourselves and to live in the power of the Holy Spirit and no longer to be conformed, is what Paul would say later in Romans, to no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be renewed. So, I know all of that is a bit forward and a bit you know, narrow to say things like that in Seattle, um, but Jesus was very forward about his identity, and so there's no sense in becoming vague in light of what he had to say about himself. And with this whole thing on lordship, um, this is probably the least popular thing in the Christian faith, to say Jesus is Lord. That is especially in a city like ours where we're cool on the grace thing, the forgiveness thing, take us to heaven thing, heck, I'm, be a good person. That's all, yeah. But when you say Jesus is Lord, you're all of a sudden saying things like Jesus has laid claim to your thoughts, not just your outward actions, but what goes on in your mind, what goes on in your heart. If you're a Christian, you know this to be true about him. Things you used to do in the flesh just out there, now you're not even allowed to get, entertain those ideas inside anymore. You know what? And you're going like, yeah, yeah, that's when Jesus shows up and busts me there too. I'm angry in traffic, wanting to swear at this guy next to me, and Jesus is like, hey man, you're not allowed to talk like that, think like that. You're like, man, I can't get five seconds to myself. That's right, bingo, he laid claim to all of you and he's not gonna give you up. That's lordship. So yeah, he's allowed to tell us how to live. When you, when you rise from the grave, you're allowed to say just about anything you want, I think. And so he, he does, he rose from the dead and lays claim to all of our lives. 
And so Jesus is Lord. He is not Superman that swoops in, saves you from a building, burning building, puts you on the ground to go back to your family and friends, and then he flies off never to see him again. Jesus becomes Lord. Yes, he saves you from the burning building. And then he's like, and I'm moving in. And I'm staying. And in fact, I'm taking over. That's what lordship is. It's a beautiful thing that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. And so when Jesus comes in, he calls us, he saves us from our sins, but he also calls us out of the darkness completely and to walk in the light both privately and publicly. That our integrity, our inner character, who we are on the inside, deeply, deeply, deeply matters to him. And so what you'll see again today and what Jesus does throughout his ministry, here's something so unique about Jesus. Jesus condemns good works when they are produced from wicked hearts. I'll say that again. Jesus condemns our good works when they are produced from wicked hearts, which is unlike just about anybody else in the world or any other world religion or philosophy. Do good works. Great. Jesus says keep them if your heart is disengaged. Like, wow. It's because he wants all of you. And we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus does this. Throughout the entire Old Testament, we see the prophets coming on the scene and calling people, the people of God, to stop living in rebellion, stop living in sin, and so on. But but not just stop rebelling and breaking commandments. The prophets again and again show up and go, stop going through empty religious routines. Stop doing this out of habit. Stop approaching God lazily. Stop taking your salvation for granted. Stop taking atonement for granted. Stop taking the forgiveness of sins for granted. Stop taking your security and righteousness in heaven for granted. Wake up. That's what they do again and again. They show up and they grab guys. Nehemiah literally grabbed guys by the collar and shook people saying, you got to wake up. You need to wake up. Jesus is doing this again. You see this especially in like Amos 5. Listen to this, how blunt Amos was. I'm gonna do a book study on him eventually. He's amazing. Eighth century prophet, fig tree farmer, not from a line of a bunch of of other prophets and priests. Amos minding his own business. God called him and sent him out. And he even opens, he's like, look, I'm a farmer. I did not go to seminary, but hear the word of the Lord. And like Repentance breaks out throughout Israel. Listen to what Amos had to say. This is what God speaks through Amos. I hate, wow, okay, God hates things. What what does God hate? I hate your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though uh, Though you bring your choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Wow. Like, pack up the band, go home. I'm tired of it. I don't want your offerings. I don't want your money. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want any of this. It's a clanging cymbal in my ears. Like, wow. Well, we were trying to to worship. God says, pack it up. I don't want it. Why? But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. You can see that God's heart in both Old and New Testaments is one that is extremely relational. 
and he wants more than mere outward conformity. He is looking for a lifestyle on the outside that actually matches the posture of the heart on the inside. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus opened with the Beatitudes and describing the character of the Christian life. And then he moves about on to talking about his own fulfillment of the law. And he calls his disciples to practice a righteousness that surpasses the scribes of the Pharisees. Which wasn't a statement like, just do more good works than the Pharisees. That, that, that's a, a, a quantity of righteousness. He's not saying that, but a different kind of quality of righteousness. And then he starts describing what that qualitative righteousness looks like. It's not just don't cheat on your spouse. It's don't lust. It's not don't just kill people. Don't murder. It's don't hate anybody on the inside. It's this qualitative kind of righteousness that Jesus is getting at. And he moves through about six examples. And then he ends that part of the first chapter of chapter five uh, of this part of the sermon where he says, so be perfect. Like God, the Father, be perfect like your Father. Which is his way of saying, be whole. W-H-O-L-E. Be whole. Like your Father is whole. Be consistent. Like your Father. And not just be whole, but be holy. That's what Jesus is getting at. So here we are. Chapter 6, there's a ton of stuff And you'll see in the first 21 verses, you see Jesus go after the three main pillars of Judaism. And there are three of the five pillars in Islam as well. He goes after prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. And in these 21 verses, you'll see a few, we're only going to do four verses, but you'll see a few words show up over and over again. Father, treasure, and reward. They show up again and again. And the way he opens and closes each of these sections are, are the same. He gives a negative example, then he says, do it this way instead, and then he wraps them up. So, about a reward from your Father in heaven. So let's jump in. Chapter 6, Matthew 5, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then, you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. All right. First, you just need to notice that. Beware of practicing your righteousness. The practicing piece is really important. Practicing, practicing. That's not just like, that when, if you talk to your Catholic friends, they'll say, are you practicing? I mean, like, do you go to mass? Do you take the sacraments? Right? Are, you, are you practicing? Jesus actually expects us to practice our faith, that there is something to be done with a response to being reconciled to God, that you're actually supposed to practice, you're supposed to be doing something. So back to what we said a moment ago, the gospel is not, hey, I got a bunch of good news. You're going to heaven. Jesus took care of it 2,000 years ago on Calvary. You're good to go. That's it. Don't worry about a thing. True, your good works do not add to your salvation. Your good works do not earn you atonement. Your good works do not earn you a spot at the table in heaven. You're right. Good works don't do any of that. That's all Jesus's. But Jesus's good works provides the space and the grounding and the reason and the power for our good works that we are called to practice. So lest we think grace means sit on the sideline and every time I sin, I just charge that to Jesus' account and check out my heart and live another life. No way. That's not the gospel. So if you're believing that, that is not the gospel. The gospel lays claim on us with the Lord at the center who says, practice 
live this way, do something. If you need a whole book on it, Jesus' younger half-brother, James, wrote a whole book on it. Read it, and you're gonna go, wow. There's, there's not a whole bunch of grace alone, grace alone, grace alone stuff. James is like, right, grace alone, so get to work. Like, so I'm not earning my salvation. No, who in the Bible ever said you're earning your salvation? Nobody said that. For 66 books, no one made the case, you can earn your salvation. Why do we conclude that? Because we, in the end, think God is like God, us. We think we can tip the scales. But nobody, 66 books straight, says absolutely not. But Jesus calls us to practice, to respond. But he opens with a warning. Beware, which is such a weird thing. Beware of doing good works. Beware. I know I need the warning label on adultery, uh, murder, you know, stealing stuff, things like that. Beware of the breaking the commandments thing. Beware. No, yeah, right, right. I, I totally need those. But then Jesus comes on the scene and goes, oh, you're going to need more than Moses and the Ten Commandments. Beware of doing your good works. Like, since when does good works need a warning label? Is there a wrong way to go about giving to poor people? Yes. Yes. Is there a wrong way to fast? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is there a wrong way to pray? You bet. That there is a warning that Christians are told to take heed, not only to running from sin, but to be mindful of how we go about practicing our righteousness. Beware, warning label attached to it. And we might ask, why? Here's why because there is a religious way to go about being rebellious, and it is twice as deadly as paganism. If you see who Jesus goes toe-to-toe with again and again in the Gospels, it is not the drunks, it is not the prostitutes, it is not the tax collectors. Yes, he calls all of them to repent and follow, but the people you see Jesus going toe-to-toe actually arguing with are the religious rebels. It's twice as deadly. This is why Jesus has to label this beware thing. It's really serious. And why is that? Because religious rebellion can go on for years and years and years and go completely undetected in the heart of the individual. Self-righteousness has a way of blinding us in a way that outward breaking 10 commandments doesn't. Self-righteousness is twice as deadly. Who put Christ on the cross on Good Friday? It was the self-righteous ones. So as Christians in church on Sunday morning who think that God might owe us something because we're, you know, showing up We should heed Jesus' warnings. Self-righteousness goes undetected. Um, I usually don't do illustrations because I'm not very good at them. Drew is. Um, but, I, but, I, but I nearly killed our family a couple of weeks ago, so I figured this, is, this one's kind of appropriate. Like, how did you do this, dude? All right, well, here you go. So um, my, my family, we just bought a house. And uh, in our house, it came with two fireplaces, which is just 
awesome. And one of them is in the kitchen, and we can cook over it. And so we do. And so, and it's, it's really fun. And uh, one of my buddies, he was like, dude, I'm coming over. Let's cook on that fireplace in your kitchen. I was like, great, let's do it. So what are we making? He said, we're doing steak. I said, great, let's make tacos. He said, even better. And so we're going to make steak tacos. And what we did, he said, Let, get some coals, you know, the chunk wood coals, throw it in the fireplace, let the coals get really, 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 really hot. Then you take the steak and you don't put it on a grater in a skillet or anything. You just throw the steak, the flank steak, like directly onto the fire, right, into the coals. Cooks like that, pull them out. Fantastic. It was really cool. It was like, oh, okay, this technique is pretty amazing. Like, well, how did you almost kill yourself? Ah, oh, well, we ate dinner, Tomatillo, he made, it was Kirk, hi Kirk, Kirk made these amazing tortillas, just make Kirk make you these, um, and we, we do it, Mexican street corn, we did the whole thing, right, we eat everything, Kirk, Bugs, they head home, Jan and I jump in bed, we clean up, jump in the bed, fall asleep, at midnight, I heard beep, it's like, what in the world, Spencer, a firefighter, he's like, you're a doofus, all right, you already know, I guess, all right, so, so, something beeped, I was like, that's not the fire alarm. And then it beeped again. I'm like, all right, I got to get up and go check this. Went out. Nothing was weird. Didn't see anything. Nothing's on fire. I don't smell anything, right? All this. And then we look over, and the carbon monoxide alarm, the little light had gone from green to red. It's like, you guys are about to die. Your house is filling with carbon monoxide. So we call the fire department, we're like, hey, our house is, we might be dying, I don't know. And so we talk to them, like, and they're like, open all the windows, dude. And we're like, holy cow, okay. And so anyway, why is that important? Why is that even remotely relevant when we're talking about the subject of self-righteousness? Here's why, because self-righteousness goes undetected just like carbon monoxide. And you don't even know you're breathing it in. And it can kill you. It can kill you. The times you're going to be most miserable in your faith in Jesus, I promise you, I've been this guy time and again. The times you are most miserable in your faith are the times in which you gain a sense of righteousness from your own self. The times when you're most miserable. So, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So there it is. What's the problem with doing good works? Are we, not, are we not supposed to do good works? No, no, we're supposed to do good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, God created good works for you. He prepared good works specifically for you to do. They, there are good works in your life that God has wired you specifically to do and nobody else in your neighborhood. God prepared good works for you. Yes and amen. But Jesus is going after what the motive Beware of practicing your righteousness in order to be seen. In order to be seen by men. Is it wrong to be congratulated or encouraged? No, that's why we come together all the time as Christians. Jesus says, when the motive is that you might receive applause and praise from other people, Jesus says, run from that. We're told to run from that. Brennan Manning says it this way in the, my favorite book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. The temptation of the age is to look good without being good. To just look good. And in Seattle, that flies. Look good. Vote right. Get on the right side of the fence on everything. Make sure you are right. 
Pull for the right team. Look good. Make sure you have the right hashtags. Be in the right place at the right time with the right people. Look good. The temptation of the age is to look good without being good. Then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. We'll get to that in just a second. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So when you look it through, when you give to the needy, not if, not if, not if. When you give, it's assumed. If you need to know about giving, the, I'll just send you my notes. There, there's 25 verses in, in just, like I think it was Exodus, just on, on giving. It's, a, it's just assumed. When you give, when, when you give, don't sound don't sound a trumpet like the hypocrites do. Meaning, oh, there's a lot that goes into this, but I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, first, sound no trumpet. All right. Uh, some debate and say, did, did, the, did the Pharisees, the hypocrites, did these people literally go out into the street corner and like, bum, bum, I just gave money to this dude right here. He had no sandwich, but now he does, thanks to me. Like, did they really blast a trumpet? Perhaps, perhaps, but if you start digging around and studying a little more, there's actually, for you Harry Potter fans, there's actually in the synagogues a little room called the Chamber of Secrets. You're like, and all the nerds were like, hey man, I knew it was in the Bible. Say, it's nothing wrong with Harry. All right, so there's a Chamber of Secrets, and inside the chamber, there, is a, there was a trumpet-shaped coffer. The, a big open mouth funnels down into a box, and what was customary of the hypocrites was to reach into their pocket, grab the coins, and go in there and then throw them into the thing, making as much noise as possible. Like, wow, Tom really, he had some change to give today. And it was a thing to call attention to yourself in giving. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. Well, the word hypocrite that's a rotten word these days. Um, I spent time with one of my friends this week. He says, you know, I, I used to be a pastor. He said, I don't, I don't go to church anymore because of the hypocrites. How many of you know those people? Maybe you're those people right now in church like, oh, yeah, dude, I can't believe I'm even in here right now because y'all are a bunch of hypocrites, right? Hypocrites is a thing. But it didn't always have a negative word. It wasn't, negative. it wasn't a negative association. Jesus was the one that made it a negative association. It was originally a word that belonged to the Greek theater. It was a word that described thespians, actors, people who costumes, put a mask inside the theater, practice their lines. They get, that's right, actors say you get into character. That's what they were doing. So you, wouldn't, you would walk by a theater and see people running through their lines like, oh, yeah, look at all the hypocrites. It, was like, it wasn't an ugly word. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites who are outwardly rehearsing their lines, wearing the garb, have the mask on, but inwardly being somebody else. Jesus says, don't be like that. So if you're frustrated with hypocrites in the church, trust me, Jesus is far more frustrated, far more frustrated. And Jesus loves hypocrites. And Jesus saves hypocrites. And Jesus calls hypocrites to wholeness. 
And what's interesting here too is that Jesus is rebuking people, not people who say, you should give money to poor people, but then they themselves don't give. No, these are people that actually say, give money to poor people, and they do, and Jesus says, but they're doing it wrong. You see, this one over here is the one that Jesus is actually calling hypocritical. Outwardly, their actions lined up with what they said. And Jesus goes, there's still something wrong because they're doing it from a heart that doesn't want God. They want praise from people. Yeah. All right, so anybody feeling convicted? Because when you're like, okay, yeah. This happens every Sunday, yeah. (laughs) Verse three. Actually, I'll just need to finish verse two, sorry. Hypocrite says, doing the synagogues that they may be praised by men. Truly, I say to you, they receive their reward. That's important to note. They receive their reward. There it is. Like the bravo, the applause, like, man, that was really amazing. Jesus goes, and eventually the applause just. Jesus goes, there it is. For all your giving right there and the praise you received, that's it. That, that was it. That empty clap. It's over. It's over. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Which is really, really an interesting thing to say. This is one of those verses I was sitting with my friend Jesse this week. I was going, man, you know that verse, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, dude, I've read that my whole, I've heard that my whole life. I grew up in church, my, right? And so, I, it's, you know how those things just fly right over your head? And you're like, dude, I've read that a jillion times, never even, yeah, I had one of those moments this week. I'm like, you're a pastor, you should not have that be happening. I'm like, well, you know, I'm a human first. <laughs> so, flew right over my head. Here's what Jesus is getting at. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, is he's saying, keep secrets from yourself. How does your left hand not know what your right hand is doing? That's impossible. Keeping a secret from yourself, how can you do that? What is he getting at? He's getting at this. Hide that weaker part of you that is going to want to run the tape later in life and applaud yourself. When you hide one hand, you not only can't receive praise from men, Jesus now says, hide this hand so you can no longer applaud yourself. Hide your left hand from your right hand. Don't let that part of you that's going to gloat in your righteousness later, hide that from yourself. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So not only are we not supposed to seek praise from others, we're not even supposed to seek our own praise, which is not saying shame yourself, hate yourself, have a poor self-image, have no self-esteem, put yourself down all the time because that's godly. That could not be further from the gospel. Self-hatred is not a fruit of the Spirit at all. But what Jesus is saying is do not think for a moment that your righteousness is adding anything to your life. My righteousness does that. So hide your left hand. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So why do that? Well, he, he, he pushes you a bit further. And besides, we all know this, so I need to say this to you. I'm just looking at it. Um, we all know that we all should be generous to the poor. 
Um, Jews believe that. Muslims believe that. Everybody believes that. You can be an atheist sitting in this room right now and you go, you think we should help out less fortunate people? Everybody in this room go, yeah. What makes this unique? What makes Christian generosity, what Jesus is describing, right? What makes that unique? What sets, what sets Christianity apart when it comes to giving to the poor? Here's one. So that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. What sets Christian giving apart? Why do it in secret? Because you have a secret father who's seeing everything you do in secret. And there's a reward waiting with him. This is so important. Jesus in this, in this section, in 6, 1 to 21, mentions the word father 10 out of the 17 times that in, in, the gospel, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. 10 out of 17 times he starts talking about father, 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 father. He's trying to get something across and he's talking to, already talked to us about what it is to be children of God. This is so massive that you don't miss this when it comes to your giving. Your father, your father sees what's done in secret. You see, God not only sees all the things we do in secret when we're keep, like that we don't want anybody to know we did these things in secret. God sees not just the bad stuff, the sin stuff. God sees the good stuff. Then in a day and age where, did anybody, does anybody know I'm doing this? Is anybody aware? God is aware. God is aware. God is watching. Your father who sees you giving in secret is in secret. And this is amazing. Your Abba's child. So when you give generously in secret, you're free. How freeing. That God is watching. I don't need your applause. I don't need my own applause. I've got God, my heavenly Father. His applause. Now, Remember a moment ago when he said in verse one where he says, the people that sound a trumpet and all that, they have no reward from their father in heaven. Here's something that you need to know that's very important in this text. Um, our English translations, I think all of them, translate this word from, from your father in heaven. Uh, it's from, but the better translation from the original language here in Greek is With. Meaning what? They have no reward with the Father in heaven. The idea is this. That in heaven, the reward that you receive is not something God goes, okay, here's your reward. You're a good boy. You're a good girl. Off you go. No, no, no. In the gospel, here's what God is giving you. God is giving you God. God. Like when you get to heaven, you get God. It's not just streets of gold. If it's streets of gold and pearly gates and a crystal sea and Jesus isn't there, who cares? Why go? We're already in Seattle. This is okay. And if you don't like the rain, you can go to San Francisco. It's fine. But look, if you're going your way to heaven, you get God. The reward is with your father. 
that in heaven you receive whatever he has for you to be celebrated with your father, that your sins are separated from you. As far as the east is from the west, that all your good deeds he took note of and he's going to celebrate your homecoming with you. That you are not an employee that, was, that worked all right for a few years. You are his son, you are his daughter, and you're welcomed into his living room with your father in heaven. That is fantastic news for a city as lonely and as broken and as confused and as disoriented as we are. We get God in the gospel. So if you're not a Christian today, and you're like, well, how does this apply to me? If you're not a Christian, and you're either living for the praise of somebody else or your own, you can get off the hamster wheel of life. Because eventually all our hearts give out on that hamster wheel. And you can rest in the finished work of Jesus that your father is taking notes and there is a reward waiting on you as you place your faith in him. That by Jesus' death and resurrection, he has extended the invitation to you to live eternally. For the Christian today, who's hung up on impressing everyone and living out of a false identity, seeking a praise from others, you're invited to repent, to reorient yourself, and to let all that go. Matthew's gospel ends with this amazing thing that I have to tell you about. That on the judgment day, after all the good works are done, as often as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me, Jesus is going to remind us that Jesus himself was hidden in our suffering neighbor. As often as you did it to one of these, you did it to me. And the sheep will say, when Lord, I didn't know you were hidden in the suffering of my neighbor. I was just living and giving. I didn't know that was you. And then what does Jesus say? To them, I'll say, to my right hand, enter into the joy. Enter into the joy of your master. Then when you walk into heaven, it is a huge, huge, huge party. And Jesus has paid the tab. You're in by grace alone. But he's going to highlight what we did or did not do to the least of these, to the needy.